you're John. Hi, I'm John Reller. And I'm Lee. And this is the Avalanche Hour Podcast. Perfect. So there we practiced it. Nailed it. Sweet. You are tuned into episode 3.8 of the Avalanche Hour podcast. I'm your host, Caleb Merrill. The Avalanche Hour podcast is proudly presented by TAS Gazex, an avalanche of solutions, and our good friends at Ten Barrel Brewing. Drink beer outside. The goal of this podcast is to create a stronger community through the sharing of stories, knowledge, and news amongst people who have a curious fascination with avalanches. Congratulations to Peter B. from Valdez, Alaska, who is this month's winner of a Primo El Profesional Snowsaw. Peter is a guide, forecaster, and educator, and I'm sure he'll be stoked with this new great piece of gear that is helping to support fellow Avalanche pros. You can win next month's saw by tagging at the Avalanche Hour podcast and at Primo Snow and Avalanche in an Instagram post. I've really been enjoying seeing all your photos of you getting the goods as well as getting a better idea of what's going on in your local snowpack. Next month's saw giveaway will be on February 15th. I truly had a blast with the interview we were highlighting this episode. It was super fun. I especially like this one because it stemmed from a listener suggestion slash request, which fires me up because it means that we as a community are interacting to make this podcast better and more of what you want. So cheers to that. Another reason I'm stoked to highlight this particular episode today is because it has to do with avalanche rescue dogs. Who doesn't like a good avalanche rescue dog? I don't know if you guys heard, but there's recently a live find made by a dog in France of a 12-year-old boy who was buried by an avalanche for 40 minutes. Pretty miraculous. The boy was skiing with his parents when they ventured off-piste and triggered an avalanche. He did not have a beacon on, but the avalanche dog was able to locate him, and amazingly, his only injury was a broken leg. Pretty crazy. So this episode is going to highlight John Reller and Lane Kreitzer. John is a dog handler and part of the C-RAD program. He's based in Silverthorne, Colorado, while Lane is a dog trainer and handler based in the Wasatch. They tell us all about the C-RAD program as well as what is involved in training and working with dog teams in the mountains. Without further delay, let's drop in with John and Lane. Well, thanks for sitting down with me this morning, fellas. Um, Beautiful Silverthorne, Colorado. Nice fall day here. Um, You guys are ramping up for some dog training the next four days, I hear. Yeah, we are. We've got our uh, annual fall fall course over the next four days, and it looks like the weather's coming in right on time to uh, make it very realistic for us. But yeah, really looking forward to it. We've got a bunch of teams coming in. Cool. And so, John, you're, you're part of CRAD, which is what? The Colorado Rapid Avalanche Deployment Program okay. here in uh, the state of Colorado, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> right. And, and so what is CRAD for those folks that don't know? We started out as an avalanche deployment team and still are. Uh, we're, we're a unique program. We're one of the only uh 
programs in the country that works with a medical helicopter where the flight crew gets off. A lot of other teams work with medical helicopters, but they just join and get on the helicopter. So our training is a little bit more different and extensive as far as the helicopter is concerned. Okay, so what, what uh, organization is it Flight for Life? that you work with? Predominantly, it's Flight for Life. We've started also working a bit more with HATS, uh, the High Altitude uh, Army uh, Training Center, either out of Buckley uh, on the east side of the divide or out of uh, Eagle on the west side of the divide. But yeah, predominantly, it's flights that we're working with. Okay, and so what are the flight crews doing when they hit a, a, a scene of an avalanche? If there's been a, an avalanche that we believe has a burial in it and we want to fly a deployment team in, which consists of uh, a certified handler and dog and a snow tech, um, they've been picked up somewhere, obviously, whether it's at a ski area or we met them at the helipad. The flight crew gets off, we get on. So at that point, the flight crew is left either at the ski area or whatever LZ has been chosen. Uh, and they're there waiting for us to get dropped off, make an assessment, uh, and at that point, do we need a flight crew to come back in to deal with a patient or do we need more resources brought in, whether it be additional snow techs or additional dog teams? And then I imagine that flight crew that's at the staging area or helipad can help facilitate, you know, getting those teams on the helicopter. And that, that must be a little bit more of a smooth transition. Yes and no, because if they're... Uh, at a ski area, chances are we're going to a different ski area to pick up another team because we can't deplete the resources of a ski area. So especially here in Summit where we've got so many uh, ski areas that are close by with uh, available resources, we might be going to a different area so that flight crew is still not there to help out. Gotcha. Yeah, I understand. Um, so so how did CRAD come about? CRAD started... Uh, as in, uh, like I said, the avalanche deployment program in 1991, when several different agencies got together, being Sheriff's Department, Search and Rescue, Ski Patrols, and Flight for Life, uh, realizing that, the, that we all had individual uh, talents. But if we pooled all those specialties and those talents, we could really affect a, a, a rescue much quicker and therefore obviously hopefully save a life someday. Uh, so all those agencies came together and uh, came up with a plan. Is how, how can we make this work Use, using all the specialties of each of those agencies? Was, there, then, was there a certain event that took place that, that was kind of a turning point that it, where it was obvious that some collaboration was needed? I think it was a culmination of several events. You know, over the years, obviously, avalanche fatalities, um, you know, Peak 7 was was obviously one in the public eye, made, made a lot of people aware. At that point, though, we didn't have a helicopter up here, so it really wasn't a question um, as to being able to set up that program. In, in 1990, Flight for Life started to base one of their helicopters part-time out of Frisco. Um, and that's when it became apparent that, hey, we could use this resource and come up with a program here that's going to benefit uh, the whole county and beyond. Mm -hmm. And so what's your role within the organization, John? Did you have a, a hand in starting it? Or, or? Yes, my wife and I were, were active uh, on patrol back at the time and uh, were part of those discussions. Um, we were quite new, so we were uh, you know, learning and figuring things out back then and I guess we still are. Uh, <laughs> uh, 
Yeah, we were part of that original discussion. Okay, so you, so you were patrolling at Copper at the time, is that correct? That's correct. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then you stayed there for a number of years, and and I I realized you just recently transitioned over to A Basin. Yep, I was at Copper for twenty nine years, and and uh, now I have the pleasure of working at A Basin. All right, and uh, how many dogs have you trained in your <clears throat> tenure? My wife and I have had five uh, certified avalanche dogs and wilderness dogs as well. We work work them year round. Um, and have had the great opportunity to work with countless other dogs. Yeah, awesome. And Lane, so you're a you're a dog trainer, right? Tell us a little bit about what you do and where you're from. Okay, so uh, shout out to everybody here. Um, I'm from Utah, so shout out to the Wasatch. We were having a good conversation about that a little bit earlier, but I'm happy to be here in Summit, hanging out. Um, my background is it's all uh, retired law enforcement. I spent a majority of my career. Uh, with my agency, either as a uh, dog handler, dog trainer, uh, dog unit supervisor, and then kind of where I've become involved in this uh, aspect is also an adjunct instructor for Utah Peace Officer Standards and Training, which is in the state of Utah, um, legislatively, training is funded uh, through the state. So you actually have a government entity that will actually train and certify dogs and handlers. So you can actually receive two different certifications and, and that's provided for in-state agencies at no cost. Um, and typically those trainings are about eight weeks in duration. We'll train for eight weeks and we take four weeks off. Then we train for eight weeks and we take four weeks off. And that just goes to us. I wouldn't call it a vicious cycle, but it's definitely a cycle you get used to over every year. And uh, two of those events, or two of those cycles are um, our detector dog courses. So that's learning how to do human remains, uh, narcotics detection, explosive detection. If you want to go catch poachers, we'll teach you how to do game detection, uh, things on that, that aspect. And then the other one is typically referred to as a patrol dog class, but it's all about training dogs how to go find man. And so we have that incorporated with the... Um, you know, the t- standard patrol dogs going out there and searching for criminal suspects, but we also throw in what's called the PSAR program, which is public safety search and rescue. And that's where we work with, um, you know, in this case, WBR back in Utah and coming out here and, and, uh, talking with CRAD and, uh, taking the, the training philosophies that we have and, and giving that information to them so they can use those with their training programs. So yeah, I'm, I'm not a patroller. Uh, I sit here and I'm always amazed when I watch all, all these guys and what they do and the guys, I'm the guy that pays a guy to take me somewhere to have a great time. Um, you know, I just love that. I love that. But I, I definitely wanted to be able to be a resource to them on the dog training side, which is kind of where the relationship has been created. And it's been a fantastic relationship having him come in, uh, for several years now. And I know he's teaching at other, uh, patrol and, and dog schools as well, yeah. uh, just to bring in all that outside information has right. been invaluable. And I, I'm sure you you all train internationally too. I know when I was at Solitude, you know, we had a, a dog team that went over to Switzerland or, or up to Canada mm-hmm. on occasion. And so could you talk about some of those organizations and, and how, um, you know, some of that, that experience and expertise has lended into the United States dog programs? Yeah. Some of those agencies, like you mentioned over in Europe have been doing it for a long time and really have, um, perfected their method. Um, I don't know that there's any one right method because we're all doing something just a little bit different, uh, but they all have a successful method. And that's what's important. There's not one right method for, for every team out there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I did have the great opportunity 
uh, three years ago to go up to uh, CARTA, the Canadian Avalanche Rescue Dog Association, with my dog and go through their week-long school and uh, just had a blast, you know, training with new people, new input, new ideas, um, and, and being able to bring that back here to see uh, rad and, you know, hopefully spread that information to, to all the members here. Right. That's awesome. Um, so uh, how many... How many different patrols uh, have dog teams that are involved in CRAD throughout the state? Is, is that is pretty much every resort have? We CRAD? are getting there. Yeah, we're um, relatively new as far as a statewide organization. Been very active countywide and uh, surrounding counties right here. Uh, so over a dozen at this point that are involved at at some level, and and getting a few more. Uh, this year, we'll have uh, just a, over 11 different uh, ski patrols represented just next week. Oh, cool. And then uh, some folks from a couple other states as well, Nevada and Idaho. Uh-huh. Awesome. And a dog coming down from Canada as well. Cool. And so what what will be involved in that <clears throat> four-day training? We'll do a fair bit of um, dog training, obviously. <laughs> Not to, you know, that's a pretty obvious answer. Uh, well, I'm glad. But <laughs> I'm glad we're going to train dogs. And humans, so, you're going to train. So, I, I've heard it's harder to train the humans than the dogs, really. What I think what we've become is pretty good adept at uh, picking the correct dog for the job. Right. What we're not so good at is picking the right person for the job. <laughs> so you're right. If you have the right dog, then the rest of it, uh, as far as training the dog, is fairly easy. And we refer to it as dog training, but I think that's a bit of a misnomer. It's team training. You have to train as a team, develop that bond, and, and how you're going to work together. Um, so we do a, a lot of uh, air scent drills, odor drills, working with the dogs. But again, since we're a bit unique in that we, when we deploy it, it's always with a snow tech that we try to incorporate all aspects of an avalanche rescue mission, whether it's backcountry travel, first aid, how do you move a patient, what equipment do you have with you, are you prepared to spend the night, feed your dog, take care of your dog, all those considerations that go a little bit beyond the normal, you know, Sit, heal, fetch, go find. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's so it's a little bit of a challenge, a fun challenge, to coordinate all those aspects uh, into a four day class, and then also, weather permitting, have a helicopter uh, do some training with us as well. Yeah, because part of that is you're trying to get the techs and the handlers all certified on their helicopter operations, so they can be able to take that position. Um, and replace like a flight crew to be able to go out, right? Isn't exactly. It? And they receive a certification or a card. What is that? We have uh, an annual training, yep, that that you have to go through, the initial annual training. And you get, uh, we call it a green card. And uh, I'm sure you can guess what color it is. Um, that we then have to. It's not to- blue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so we have a green card training that allows you to you know, work the doors, you know how to do the seatbelts, the helmet, strapping all the equipment down, because uh, the pilot can't get out and he's not going to be able to help you with any of that. Uh, and then that has to be maintained on a monthly basis to go back and, and do the training. So our goal is one of the mornings we will go through that green card training, which ends up taking several hours to cycle everybody through loading and unloading. And then on the following day to do uh, an actual flight, hop out and go right into a drill Cool. And so, with all that going on too, you know, then the dog training and, and the people training will be going on. So, you know, everybody's trying to make it sound like it's, you know, always wonderful, amazing instructors showing up to help everybody out. But basically what we do is we come here to hang out in John's house and have him feed us a meal every day. 
And then he just drives us out to a spot and says, see all those dogs out there? And, and we go, yeah. And he says, go train them. And then, we just start, and then we just start talking to all the handlers and find out what they need. And uh, but what we really um, try and break them into, I mean, the, all the plans for the day could be completely just um, turned into hiatus and turned upside down based on weather conditions and our training sites, et cetera. But, but we really try and emphasize um, knocking the cobwebs off of these dogs and these handlers because, you know, They've all been doing their summer gig. They're on the river. Uh, they're doing, you know, doing whatever kind of, you know, thing they do to make money. And then they're coming back. And so we really want to emphasize all those little, we do little skills and drills a lot to, to make sure those dogs are polished and ready to go before the snow flies. Or in this case, during the snow flying, <laughs> right. we'll be doing. So, you know. So a lot of foundation work, you know, back, back to the basics. Yep. Get them dialed back in again. So you mentioned you, you have to recertify the green card every month throughout the winter or, or, or every year? Every month. Every month. Every month. Okay. So, the, so these teams are getting on a helicopter every month throughout the winter season? Right. It, it'll just be sitting, whether it's in the hangar or outside on the helipad. We're not going for a flight, but you have to go through the process of working the doors, putting the helmet on, loading your gear and, and the seatbelts. And going through all the safety features of the helicopter and the dog, I'm sure it's a pretty high. It's a high stress environment to put a dog in a helicopter. Initially, it is, but if you introduce the dog to it appropriately, mm-hmm. they think it's one of the most fun things. Really, you know. Now, um, most dogs, if they're introduced correctly, all of my dogs will literally pull me towards a running helicopter because mm-hmm. they know that if they get on that, when they get off, it means something fun at the other end. They're going to get to play the game. Right. That's a good segue. I mean, this is all a game to the dogs, right? Like this is talk a little bit about what you're looking for in a dog, whether it's, you know, a strong prey drive or how you pick a dog. Did you hear him pull the word drives? I'm impressed. (laughs) (laughs) We're just going to, I'm going to turn the microphone over to you. This is going to make it easy. He's on GTS and I love it. Um, I've dug some dog walls. (laughs) So yeah, that's, uh, that's where I get super excited. Cause again, I, I, I mean, all I have is my basic avalanche, you know, backcountry skills, awareness, et cetera. But when it comes to working with the dogs and, and taking the time to really let the handlers understand, um, okay, your dog comes with these raw drives. And what we're looking for is, like you mentioned, prey drive is one of the drives. You know, we also have hunt drive is another one. Retrieve drive is another drive. These are all different things that dogs has wired in them subconsciously to, you know, help us m- um, monopolize on the training. So, um, so from there, a lot of times, you know, the first, the first drill of the day, we will kind of assess and look at the different drives the dog ear does or doesn't have. And the reality is, is that, you know, a lot of people, um, kind of feel like, oh, it's just a, you know, my dog will just get better at this drive. And, and we kind of noticed over the years that you have it or you don't. Um, and so you'll have some people who have to work a lot harder and you'll have some other people who just got it really made easy, um, working with these drives. But, but the simple recipe we use is that, uh, what you do is to be very successful in training these dogs is you, first of all, what you do is you basically stimulate that drive. So you get the dog super excited. So an example would be if we want the dog to go out and look for and hunt for man and find man, uh, this is where everybody, the, the, the decoys is what we call them on the law enforcement side. The quarry is what they call them on the, on the rescue side. This is where we have to do a little of that people training, right? So, so imagine us taking these big, burly, you know, manly men, lumberjack ski guys and having to explain to them they're working with this little, itty bitty, tiny dog and they work in pitches. And so we have these, and I won't say it on the air. So, but we'll, we'll kind of, we'll kind of 
G-rate this conversation here, <laughs> um, but explain to them how to talk, you know, use pitches and excitement and, you know, scream and squeal and get excited. And they literally, what they do is they go out and they have this little toy and they play the fool and it gets the dog super excited. So that's what we're doing. We're, we're stimulating that drive. And they're like, hey, that's really cool. There's a guy out there, a gal, a dude or a dudette. And I'm going to, they're out there with that toy and I want to go find them. And uh, if you get somebody who's really, really good at it, they can make all the difference in the world for this dog. And then the next part of that recipe, which makes it successful, is is you use the word either compel, compel or coerce. Um, compel as I make you. Coerce as I entice you. And so something as simple as that person that's out there kind of in the woods yelling and screaming and playing the fool all of a sudden hides behind um, a rock in a ditch, um, in a trench in the snow. I mean, all these different things to make them disappear. And then you either, then, then what you do is you, like I say, you coerce or compel that dog by giving the command to go do the search. And, and you start with little baby steps and they go out there and they find this person. And then, of course, again, you get right to that, the, the final part of the recipe, which is we're going to satisfy that drive, which is most cases... Uh, depending on the breed of the dog, um, that they'll want to do one of two things. They'll either want to uh, play tug of war, and uh, that's really fun until you start seeing people's really nice Gore-Tex jackets becoming nice Rags. water, <laughs> not so permeable jackets. And uh, and the other one is retrieve. So um, what I've noticed is that uh, the the dogs that that really perform really well are the ones that really want to play tug of war. And they're being rewarded at where the, the odor that they're trained to go find, which in this case is a human. It's not the toy. The toy is a reward for finding the human. And uh, and then, you know, you can just go you go ahead and you kind of have to now look at each dog coming in. You know, there are some dogs that have no desire to tug, and that's fine. If the dog wants to retrieve and he still wants to go out and find that human odor, then we work with it. Um, and so that's, that's the really fun part. But I would say... The, probably the biggest training we do, because the dogs, again, they have it in the raw. Either they do or they don't. It's sitting down with the uh, the handlers who may or may not understand dog psychology as well, or you're just trying to get things kind of click. And so it's really f- neat to have everybody sitting around and watching and helping train the different dogs because everybody learns by seeing. So if I watch John run two dogs and then I watch you, you know, you have a dog, you run a dog. I learn all these little things. So that makes me a better quarry when I go out to, to work for the next dog to build them up. And, uh, but we, we've had some funny moments with people out there being quarries and, you know, telling them school like a girl and you're acting like you're a dead fish, you know, come on, move around. Um, I mean, yeah, again, we'll keep it G rated because I usually say other things. It's good to get that stuff on video. I remember doing that and, and having my supervisor say I wasn't, you know, you're not squealing hard enough. You know? Right? Yes. Right? You're getting chastised for yeah. being the big right. good girl. And yeah. it's like, oh, no, that's not going to be fun. Yeah. You got to act like an idiot, right? Right. If people aren't looking looking at you like, what is wrong with that guy? You're probably not doing it right. You right. know, the GoPro has been a great tool to use to go back and do and replay these these examples for everybody so they get a chance to see it. And, there's, and there are moments where you just look at that video and you kind of hang your head in shame like, okay. Yeah, I see. I see what you're talking about now. <laughs> So what's what's uh, what's the process of certification in the United States? That varies from state to state, county to county, agency to agency. So uh, how about for CRAD? <clears throat> uh, for CRAD, we really just have one validation level, uh, and it's it's very similar to what what WBR has. Um, it's finding one to three people in an area approximately 100 meters by 100 meters within 20 minutes. So you have unknown number of people 
uh, in a finite number of time, um, amount of time there. And there might be articles within the We path. can put articles. There's certain ways you want to place those articles, uh, but uh, up to two articles mm -hmm. is what we're going to put in there. Okay. And so what? how many years does that usually take a, a dog team to attain that certification? It's typically a two-year process. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's your you know, second or third dog, you can usually do that a little bit quicker, again, based on having the right dog. Uh, but on that first go-around, I would say a minimum of two years, uh, because not just the dog, but we want the handler to get as much experience as possible before they get put out there in the real situation. We want to be able to put the best resource that we have out well, there to help take somebody. Take a minute, John, talk about um, you know, the reason why it's also two years for you guys is because you guys kind of run a puppy program, which is something that's not very common on my side. So you know, you're still developing a dog over a two-year time frame before you're taking it out there and putting it under those stresses versus if you had a dog that's maybe two, three years of age, you could fast-track that. Wouldn't you agree? Uh, good point. Yeah. Some of the agencies, um, Carta, I, I don't know if they still do. Uh, I know several years back. For the first year, they did very little search, a bit of obedience. And then once the dog was a year old, uh, would kick more into obedience and then go into search. So once you started that search, that window was a bit smaller because they would progress quicker. Mm -hmm. uh, we're pretty firm believers that, you know, if the, if the dog has that drive, I mean, we've started all of our dogs uh, pretty much as soon as we've gotten them, you know, very, very simple runaways like Lane was talking about. Um, but they've got that drive and they love it from, from day one. So we introduce it to them early on. Uh, but, but on the flip side of that, then you don't rush a puppy, mm -hmm. you know, you let them mature and expand the game as, as, as they're adapting to adapting and learning it. All right. Um, so what, what breeds generally are the best avalanche rescue dogs or, you know, other working dogs in your in your line of work, Lane. So, um, yeah, I, I'm I'm one of those guys where I'm not a breed or a sex specific kind of um, person when I'm looking at a dog. Uh, what we do at at uh, the police academy is we actually have a so kind of backing up a little bit. So so our background um, and our lineage at the Utah Police Academy is from Germany. So we, all of our trainers or majority of our, you know, our, our lead um, trainer and director of the program, um, attended a, a place called Atlantis Polizeischule, which is located in Stuckenbrock, Germany, which is North Westphalia. And so it's kind of our lineage about how we go about training. And one of the things that's been really nice is that there was a, a selection test created. Um, and it's, it's not a selection test that most of the, ski patrols are used to, which is, you know, a puppy selection test because they're mostly picking up dogs at a young age. Um, for us in our program, obviously, to have a dog and have it sit around for two years and not be able to deploy it was was not a, um, a, a financial business plan that worked very well. So so what we do is we typically pick up dogs. We start test, testing and selecting dogs at, at about two, two to three years. And so we'll have his form. And this form basically ha is broken down into if you want a dog to be a detector dog or you want his dog to be a um, you know, man search dog. Um, we have certain tests we do that basically are a pass fail on the drive. So we just talked about all those different drives, you know, retrieve drive, fight drive, prey drive, um, hunt drive, um, play drive, all those different things. And so what you're doing is you're going out and you're, uh, it's, it's kind of fun to watch when you'll go to these vendors who are bringing dogs over from Europe or wherever they're coming in from and, and they've made off the plane and now you've got 15 different agencies walking around wanting to select dogs. Well, every agency has a program that they they may be running a dog that only 
searches for man. Our agency may be running a dog that's called dual purpose dog, which is a search for man and narcotics. So you'll go through and you may test 10, 11 dogs um, before you find that one that passes. And then when you, when it passes, you grab it and you buy it. Um, and so we have this, you know, it's, it's available to anybody who wants to use it. Um, it's, it's, it's a great little simple selection test. Um, we prefer to do it away from the vendor site. So somewhere where the dog's not familiar with where they're at. Um, and then as an agency, we also had a couple other specific things we needed, um, with my home agency because we met our dogs on our SWAT team. So we did a couple other things that would help us figure it out and go that route. So if I went out there and I mean, this is kind of joking aside, but, but this dog was literally like three legged and, uh, you know, he had, came from some breed that was unheard of. If he passed a test, Hey, he had a chance of making it and it could have been male, female, uh, oh, we didn't care. So we never, but what we found is, um, in law enforcement, the dogs that tended to do really well for man work, uh, is either German Shepherd or the Belgian Malinois. And they're basically a herding dog. Uh, they're very hardy, very fit. Um, I would, I, I jokingly kind of refer to the, uh, uh, the, the Malinois being the, the super hyper one of the other two. They're, they're really fun to work with. Um, they're, they're really fun dogs. I ran quite a few Malinois and only one German Shepherd in my career. And then when it comes to detector dogs, you know, you could actually kind of lean more towards the floppy-eared dogs. And uh, a lot of successful Labrador breeds, um, retrievers um, are all, you know, good quality dogs that have that play drive when you're looking to go out there and, and look for those human remains or explosives or narcotics. So, yeah, that's that's kind of the name of the game there where you may find some people – you know, based on their experience, they may actually specifically go with a breed. And if that breed's successful, that that's great too. But but the market is so busy. I'm not sure what you guys are seeing on the search and rescue side, but definitely on the law enforcement side, I mean, it's competitive. You know, mm -hmm. since since global war and terror kicked off, um, mm -hmm. you know, we used to be able to buy dogs for a pretty reasonable price back in the, you know, late 90s, early 2000s, and now you're buying dogs for a premium price. Like how, how much are we talking Oh, about? when I first got in the game, when I first started working dogs in 88, um, Typical patrol dog that was a dual-purpose dog you'd buy for five thousand uh, bucks. It's not uncommon to be purchasing a dog between ten thousand and fifteen thousand dollars now. Wow! Um, out there, and you'll get probably five years because you're getting a dog that's about two to three years of age, so he's mature. You can basically train him in about eight weeks and be on the street, um, and you'll get probably five years out of that dog before you start seeing him, you know, slowing down or having um, you know arthritis, etc. At that point, you get ready to phase that dog out so he's not working through that pain and misery and bringing our dog on. But the, but the return and gains, the return you get off that investment is, I don't even know how you can put a number on it because of all the, you know, right. the people you find, um, you know, sadly um, it's, I'm, I'm having a great time working with the, you know, the, the ski patrol rescue dog community because what they're doing is they're going out there looking for people who, you know, need to be found quickly where, but the ratio is a lot lower. I think it's because human beings are smart, safe, and et cetera. But on the law enforcement side, it was like every day you're going out there looking for one or two people a night who don't want to be found. So your your find ratio is really high, but it's always, you know, it's it's the danger factor mm -hmm. that you're dealing with where working on this side has been really just eye-opening and educational for me and really fun. John, are there any breeds that you've found like have not worked well in the snow? Uh, again, to Lane's point, I think it's it's more about uh, we say puppy selection, you know, for him dog selection, just because of the age that mm -hmm. we're getting him at. As a general rule, as you said, the the 
the sport dogs, the hunting dogs. Uh, so all of the retrievers, labs, border collies, um, Aussie shepherds, uh, along those lines as a whole do, do better. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people a lot of times wonder about the Huskies or Malinois, very independent. Um, rarely or almost never do you see those in uh, star work there. You know, they love to run. They're great for pulling. Um, that's why you see them in the Iditarod. Right. You know, that's, that's what they're been bred, bred for and their purposes. Maybe stepping outside my lane here, but I'm thinking a dachshund probably wouldn't do very well. You <laughs> no, know, they need, to, they need to stick to Oscar Mayer or kind of Heinz ketchup commercials. Pretty Wait, affordable, you though. Could, you could just yeah, you deploy them from you your pocket. You could put it right in your pocket. I mean, and you, they're cylindrical enough. They might slide really well, but I don't know if they can really move through the powder. Right. So, yeah, there's that mix of, you know, what, what were they bred for versus their size, agility, longevity. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, and sometimes the mixes... You know, with the labs and especially the retrievers, uh, a mix, you don't have some of the health concerns that those dogs typically get. So it can help a breed out to have a mix. Right. Okay. So so the cost of, of, of having a dog and training it is, is pretty high. Are most of these avalanche rescue dogs owned and, and paid for by the ski patrols or does CRAD cover any of that or how does that, that work? And Again, that varies from uh, typically state to state, sometimes resort to resort. Uh, in Colorado, the dogs are all owned by the handler. Mm. Uh, some resorts will help out. Uh, something that we hope to work towards with CRAD is whether that be insurance or um, since we're so new, that's still a, a discussion point as to how we help folks along um, or at least to understand the cost that they're looking at as they get into this. Right. I can imagine, and, and I've seen it happen, is when a, a ski resort owns a dog and then a handler you know, has a pretty tight bond with that dog and then maybe the the handler moves on or something and they can't essentially take their dog with them, right? Um, seems like that could could be a, somewhat of an issue emotionally, at least for the handler. Huh? For the handler and for the dog. Yeah. yeah, I know of a couple of cases in a different state where the dog was bumped from handler to handler enough where it kind of quit working. Mm. Not kind of, it did. <laughs> it, I think it was confused. It didn't know who it was going to be with. Again, when, you, when we start with a pup and it's used to just one or a couple of people, that bond's pretty strong versus if, um, and Lane, correct me if I'm wrong, but the dogs that you're looking at, looking at have had many handlers, so they're a bit more independent. They still develop a very tight bond with their handler once they're working. Yeah, we used to joke about it. So, you know, coming from the law enforcement side, I mean, that's that that's a tool, it's a piece of equipment that's owned by the agency. Typically, you know, normally that's what the case is. You'll get some agencies that allow, you know, purchase personal purchase of a dog. But, uh, you know, that's a that's a piece of equipment that, let's say, for instance, you have a dog handler that works for three years and he promotes or he wants to transfer to another unit, uh, which may be something you see, um, you know, then that dog still able to work the street, we would just select a new handler and then he would just be reassigned to a handler. And, and so we kind of joke about it because because I always uh, I always make this joke and, and uh, there's a really neat gal um, with WBR who always just kind of teases back at me. But I always tell her, I said, your dog doesn't love you. He just loves whoever feeds him for two weeks straight. Because, <laughs> you know, all of a sudden you get moved from, you know, handler A to handler B, and uh, you start feeding that dog, then they just, they're happy to go out and do the work, et cetera. But, but you know, you've got, it's a different challenge, obviously, and, and again, not being a, a ski industry worker, but seeing the program and how, you know, what I've seen both with CRAD and with WBR, 
is, you know, privately owned dogs have their, obviously have their benefit because then you have those handlers who are invested in the program and keep coming back. Um, but, you know, maybe, maybe the offset of the cost is, 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 I mean, that's a lot of expense on that handler to be able to cover all those expenses on their own versus at least if it's representing a program or entity, or maybe you guys have it through, through programs. I never had to worry about that. I mean, it was like, go pick up a dog. You have a vehicle to transport them in. You had a cage to put them in. They supplied all your training aids. You know, you go to the vet, you know, it was recommended once a year. We go twice a year because of all the environments we put our dogs into. All medications were covered. All food was covered. So you weren't, you know, the one thing that you didn't have to worry about was anybody because I mean, Let's face it, cops are cheap. They don't make a lot of money either. So if they're getting shortcut, if they can stretch their dollar, they're going to stretch their dollar. Um, but we wanted to make sure that the dogs were getting the uh, what we believed was the best, you know, care, food, medical, et cetera. Not saying that a person who per- owns their dog personally won't do that, but it's all coming out of their pocket, their budget. Mm-hmm. You know, there may be a day where you know maybe maybe John's just eating pop tarts and ramen for a month so he can afford <laughs> to put all of his dogs through you know their teeth cleaning and whatever else you have mm-hmm. to do. I mean, and that's that's a sacrifice that a that a privately owned handler would go. So it's it's neither one of them. I would say based on your mission profile, et cetera, is the right one. It's just how you make that dog go out and perform. At the end of the day, is what really matters. Right. So, John, I was hoping you could talk about kind of a, some experiences that you've had with, with any of your dogs of, of going to an avalanche and what that looked like and just kind of recount that if, if you're willing to do so. Yeah, definitely. I've had the uh, great fortune for me, the misfortune obviously for others, uh, to be out on um, several missions. My dogs have done uh, seven uh, recoveries and avalanches at this point. Um, all of them are pretty amazing. You know, to to see what happened, to learn from it, to see the closure that it brings to the situation, and um, and two that the two that come to mind that I um, really am proud of are like uh, are with, is with our current dog Reco. Uh, when she was the first one, when she was just fourteen uh, months old, we got called to uh, a snowmobile burial uh, out in the western part of the state. Uh, it was the following day that we were going out, so we, we knew we were doing a recovery. Um, we had just certified, gotten our validation the week before. Um, we went out there. It's a small town and didn't realize that pretty much the entire town was out on the avalanche site. When we got into town, it was deserted. We met with the sheriff, and then we were we had about a 10-mile snowmobile ride, uh, a rough snowmobile ride uh, into the backcountry there. And we got out there and there was 75 snowmobiles with all the townsfolks out there. And they had uh, spent the night searching out there. So they had uh, a fire on the debris over the, over the evening. There was Gatorade bottles, there was spit. Uh, so a very contaminated site. They had used spray paint to mark areas that they thought they had searched. Um, so when you show up, you're like, oh my gosh, you know, how is she going to work through this? Well, the only person that it affected was me. You know, she didn't bother her at all. We, we went out onto the site, uh, and within five minutes, she had, I could tell, had quickly interest, and then she just started digging like crazy. Um, we probed. There was, we didn't hit anything. Uh, with our uh, 320 uh, centimeter probe. Uh, but she was emphatic that something was there. So all these people were there wanting to do something, had them 
start to do strategic shoveling. And then as we got down a little bit, we did have a probe strike. Um, turned out that he was 14 feet down. And she was, you know, spot on where that where that person was. So that was uh, an amazing one to start off. And then uh, just this past May, uh, we got a call from uh, some folks up in uh, Whitefish, Montana area for a guy that had gone missing uh, February 17th. He was out in the backcountry uh, skiing alone, uh, well-respected doctor in the community that was well-loved by all from the sounds of things. And uh, we got flown up there and dropped, flown in by helicopter, dropped off on a frozen pond. And we, in, in coming up with our plan for the day, um, I wanted to work this certain area where it sounded like there had been a slide at about that time when he went missing. Didn't know if obviously he was in it uh, or not, but it was also a pretty good route to get to the area that they wanted us to search. So we were doing an awful lot of traversing because the assumption or one of the likely possibilities was that he had fallen into a tree well. The ski area had two tree well fatalities this past year, so it was obviously a very real possibility. And with the depth, depth of snow they have, um, they were thinking, since they hadn't found him yet, that that's where he'd be found. Uh, while we were doing some long traverses on two different occasions, we were... I'd have to go back and look, but I'm going to say quarter mile away from where we ended up finding him. Um, uh, she stopped, was looking downhill, and this was uh, in the morning, uh, relatively early still. There wasn't a whole lot of wind, so the air current that we had was air that's coming up as it warms in the morning. Um, she's looking straight downhill and whining, and she's not a vocal dog. So, hmm, this is interesting. Uh, so we continued down. Uh, we, we got into an area where they had said that this is where the slide, a slide was at about that point in time. Uh, and we, she got animated in that area. She was in a tree well, but when I went in there with her, looked around, got out, she came with me right away. So there was no commitment to, uh, to the odor in the, in that tree well. We continued searching down the slope just a little bit. She got very animated again, uh, but not in a specific area, digging, but bouncing around. Uh, which I know is when she can't pinpoint. You know, she's telling me, there's something here, Dad, but I, I can't pinpoint. Uh, those The three guys that were with me, again, they wanted to do something. They'd been out searching for basically three months. Um, so I, I had them set up their own little probe line, and I asked them to probe this area. So, you know, probe this area, and I defined a rectangle there for them on the slope. And I said, when you feel that it's adequately probed, I want you to go, go off the slope and I'll come back in 15 to 30 minutes and use your probe holes as percolation holes to see if there's anything there. So we continued then. As soon as I left them, again, she continued with me. So I was quite confident there was nothing there, but um, we're, worth a try, right? I mean, mm -hmm. at that point, we had nothing else. Um, on my next kick turn, she all of a sudden very um, purposefully went downhill quickly for a ways. She went down and took a left. And I continued my grid because she, she ranges well. So I thought, well, she's checking something out. She'll be back. Did a fairly long traverse, about 100 yards or so, coming back across. I still hadn't seen her. So I went downhill at that point to where she had, where I last saw her, went into this adjacent drainage 
that uh, was a pretty creek, pretty steep creek bed. Uh, first, I didn't see her, so I went further into the drainage and then looked uphill. And she was probably 150 feet uphill digging like a fiend. So at that point, uh, walked up to her, uh, made my way up to her. And she looked up at me to acknowledge that she knew I was there but didn't stop digging and then continued. And then I walked away from her to see if she would follow or stay and she could have cared less. So she stayed there. I came back and got out a probe and uh, got a strike at 70 centimeters, and she was right on him. So that was um, an, an amazing one in many ways, you know, from the level of commitment um, and involvement from the community up there. You know, just flying up there on the plane, there were four four different people on the plane that said, oh, are you coming up for the search? Um, so, it was, you know, everybody was aware of the situation that's up there. Uh, and, and the closure that it brought to obviously the family, but to the community as a whole was, uh, you know, pretty moving. Yeah. Podcast high five right I'm there. Sure. Um, well, those are a couple of great stories. And I mean, it, it must be emotional as a handler to, you know, on one hand, you're bringing closure to the family, but it's, it's got to take a toll on, on the handlers if you're, if you're going after and in, in law enforcement, I would imagine with you know, some I guess, of these recoveries. It, 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 yeah, maybe it takes a toll, but it's also why you do it. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if, uh, you know, on one hand, maybe, you know, it's emotionally draining, but uh, you're ecstatic mm-hmm. when it happens. I mean, that's right. what you train for. Yeah. You, you know, she did exactly what she spent years training her to do. So, John, on search number one, you said 14 feet deep. And how long had the burial time been from the time you did the find? The previous day. Uh, so 24 hours max, you say? A little bit under. A little bit we, under. We... we a little bit under, yeah. Okay. So yeah. what's, I mean, to kind of paint a picture for everybody, I mean, not having been there, but right. I mean, the reason why we select these dogs is they got that big, giant, long snout out there, just slightly longer than my big, long snout. But, <laughs> but you know, when you think about scientists will kind of argue back and forth is because they just, they don't know the exact numbers. But I mean, that dog has that olfactory ability, um, which is a really cool scientific word to be able to say, smell really good. And anywhere from one to six million times greater than you and I can. So... Now you take in a dog's in a dog's world and a dog's view, you know, we may think we smell really good right here. You know, maybe John's got his, you know, brute by Fabergé on and it makes him smell even better. But <laughs> but help. right, I mean we 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 emit this odor and if the and it's a and it's a it's a generic human odor. And so if the dog is is trained to be able to process and suck in through its big nose and through his little turbines and just kinda uh, map and, and recognize and, and basically remember, oh that odor means that's what I'm looking for. Uh, to be able to do something like that where you had, and even John mentioned, you know, there had been spray paint marked there, uh, you know, spit bottles, Gatorade bottles. Okay, those were, you know, may have had some human odor on them as trace or that other odors, but that dog being properly trained and properly deployed to be able to go look for just that human odor, um, that's an amazing, uh, we look at it and go, wow, it's amazing. A dog could find somebody 24 hours later-ish you know, 14 feet down in, you know, in snow with all these different varying levels of snowpack and how, you know, if it's iced over, et cetera. Um, but to a dog, it's like, hey, nothing, ain't nothing but a, a day, Same you know, game. to what I do, right? And mm-hmm. so that's why they're such, and they're so mobile and agile and, and able to do that. So that's, those, that's, that's a fantastic story. Way to well, go. Well, that's amazing. And then, and then three months as well. The second story, yeah. fish. you know, the, I mean, the scent had to have been somewhat locked in the snow, right? I mean, or, I mean, different levels of a body going through its, you know, decomposition process. Yeah. But again, you know, looking at it in a general 
statement, you know, the training that he does and gets used to that, you know, dog recognizing human odor. And the other thing was really kind of cool. I kind of wanted to interrupt him, but I, I bit my tongue for a moment was uh, when he mentioned that, you know, his dog's up there and she starts digging. So to everybody that doesn't understand what, what that means, that's what we call in law enforcement a clue. And that's where the dog was doing his trained response thing. I've now narrowed down where that odor is at and they're going to dig, 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 dig until they, they find that source of the odor to get that reward. And so, so those are the things where, you know, for John, I guarantee you it wasn't, he was sitting there going, what is my dog doing right now? It was, oh, my dog is on odor. Let's get ready. We got some work to do mm -hmm. kind of thing. I want to add a question from a listener. And I should say that this, this interview came about because a listener emailed me and said, hey, you should interview somebody at CRAD. And, and I, I, it was on my radar. But uh, so I'm just trying to pull up this this uh email here so so yeah so thanks to Kristen for reaching out this is uh Kristen buckland i think she's from colorado we met at, at seesaw the other day and um she was hoping maybe john you could answer this what do you think the priority should be if you're skiing and your friend is caught in a slide should you immediately pull out your beacon and start the search, or should you call the sheriff's dispatch first in hopes of getting a CRAD team to the scene before the victim suffocates? By far, your best chance of survival is companion rescue. Mm -hmm. So to be in the backcountry with a properly equipped and trained partner is far and away your best bet. The caveat I would put on that, and it's gotten much better as cell phone towers get get put in would depend upon your location if you're high up on a ridge you might have cell phone service if you drop down you probably will not so i don't want to say a phone call is more important than looking for your friend but that phone call is going to bring an awful lot of help that 30 second phone call to 911 that they can typically triangulate off of your phone for a location, even if you don't know exactly where you are, um, and to, to get help coming. You know, you're, you're gonna go down there and hopefully dig out your partner, but if they're injured, you still need help. And now you might have to skin all the way back up to that ridge or out to where you do get cell phone service. So that is the one time where I would say, consider the phone call. And I think the tricky thing about that is, is uh, a 911 dispatcher is definitely gonna wanna keep you on the line, right? And so, um, if you think you are going to lose service by descending down the slope to your partner, absolutely make the phone call. But you might have to just. If you're looking for CRED, you know time's of the essence, and, right. they, and they might not be a backcountry user, so yeah. they don't understand the situation you're in. And they're trained to gather as much information as humanly possible and keep you on the line if at all possible. Right. But giving them the, your location, what happened, that you have a confirmed burial, I'm going to search. Right. And then start searching. I think the other caveat to that is I, I personally really like skiing in a group of three, right? And in, in that case, especially if there's two people still up on the ridgeline, you watch your friend get caught and buried. One person can stay up on that ridgeline, make the phone call. The other person, of course, starts to initiate the rescue. Yeah, that's really, that's a cool question. And, you know, again, not being a, a ski professional, but one of the things that I like to do whenever I go touring is I think that, you know, the worst case scenario is the avalanche, and then of course you know going getting to that, that casually quickly and get established that airway. 
Um, you, you need to have a conversation before you even hit the trail about who has what gear and where they keep it. And then I, I like to throw in there, and this is just coming from the law enforcement side, but I go over just a real quick, simple med plan. You know, if people don't haven't ha- taken some level of basic life support training, you know, explain the, you know, once you get that, that guy's airway, yeah, life is good. But now you're going to have, because I mean, after researching and seeing all these, these this trauma that occurs from guys getting knocked into trees, et cetera, is, is you're going to have a casualty that's going to, have some some uh, issues you're still going to be dealing with until you can turn them over to a better level of service like you know WBRC Rad, um, Flight for Life, et cetera, coming in there. So you know if everybody loves to get out there and and, and get into it in the backcountry, but that little itty bitty level of knowledge is going to make a big difference. And, and beacon drills, beacon drills, beacon drills. I love doing beacon drills, um, and it's kind of funny. It's kind of like the same as a dog when that when you get closer and closer and closer to that beacon, it beeps faster and faster and faster. You get super excited. It's kind of like it's only a reward system. And <laughs> not that I'm advocating, you may want to like, you know, depending on who it is you're trying to train to go find you, you may want to like put a little extra gold in there or a specific <laughs> drink or something like that they like. That's why, isn't that why St. Bernard's was so awesome? Because they had the, yep, the little flask around. Yeah, they had the flask around the neck. It's Cheetos for me. Cheetos? Are, oh, yeah. My backcountry are Fritos. Fritos, man. Can you set them on fire too? Yeah. <laughs> fire country, starter. Backcountry rescue. <laughs> So John, where can uh, where can listeners find out a little bit more about CRAD, and, and is there any opportunities to help support the organization? Or- Absolutely, and, and uh, we just opened up our uh, or launched our new website this past week at uh, c-rad.org. Uh, great looking website. Uh, I didn't have anything to do with it. Other folks didn't put a heck of a lot of time and effort, and I think it uh, is really fantastic. A lot of information on there. Again, it's new, but we're adding a lot of links. Uh, we want it to be a resource for both members and for the general public. Uh, upcoming schools, not just ours, but uh, all over the country, uh, and and all kinds of rescue information. And then there's also uh, opportunity to buy some uh, pretty cool T-shirts, mugs, hats, um, some other things will be coming on there as well in the near future, and a, and a donate button as well. And uh, we definitely rely on donations. Um, so that's great. So crad c radorg Yes. Right? Okay. Mm-hmm. And you said you didn't have anything to do with it, although you are in a video on it with a kick-ass mustache. Yes, with the most amazing <laughs> mustache in the world. Yes. I was actually I pulled up to your house and I was like, oh, that must not be John. That guy doesn't have a mustache. So it's check my, out, it's check my out. summer uniform. <laughs> hey, kid, winter's coming. Hey, back. kid, where's your dad with the cool mustache? <laughs> Yeah, that's like that's definitely pro level mustache for oh, yeah. sure. Yeah, Tom Selleck. <laughs> so go check that out, everybody, um, and help support CRAD, a great organization. Um, and we'll uh, the podcast has a, a bunch of beer from Ten Barrel. We're going to give you guys a case of Ten Barrel. Pray for snow beer for your for your training to Fantastic. keep things lubricated after after all the training is done. And I should add, you know, with these Ten Barrel Pray for Snow beer, one percent of their proceeds goes to Protect Our Winners organization, which mm-hmm. is a good, great organization. So thanks to Ten Barrel for that. You guys are awesome. Um, well, John Lane, thanks for taking the time to be on the show. It was, it was Really fun sitting down and chatting with you guys about we're, dogs. We're glad you were able to take uh, the the best that was available of the <laughs> of the worst on a Sunday, where we're all I'm staring outside, just looking at how beautiful it is outside, and we're in here doing a podcast. So, uh, that, thanks for taking the time yeah. and uh, putting us on. Appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Cheers, guys. Thanks. Thanks. Well, that's a wrap for today. Send me feedback to 
theavalanchehourpodcast at gmail.com. Or, of course, you can find a link to a contact form from the website, www.theavalanchehour.com. Make sure to subscribe as well as rate and review the podcast on whatever platform you listen to it on. I really enjoy getting all this feedback from y'all. Thanks to Mike T for the artwork. Music today was Sun Squabby performing Reptile featuring Nicholas Gerlach off their new album Instinct. Check it out. You can find it on SoundCloud or iTunes, wherever you get your music. In the background now is Cabin Sessions by Grizz. Many thanks to the artist for allowing me to use these tracks. As always, thanks to the support of TAS Gazex and Ten Barrel Brewing. You guys rock. Until next time, stay tuned, stay safe, and keep having fun out there. Cheers.